You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, I thank you again for another day of life and opportunity. What a privilege we have here at Camp Meeting to still be in a country where we can come together and open your word together and study and pray and fellowship and encourage one another. Father, I pray that the truths of your word would be the means of transforming our hearts and helping us to become more like Jesus, that you would help us to hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. I pray that you would bless our time together in your word this morning by sending your spirit of truth to lead us into an understanding of your truth. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Topic of our message today is unto 2,300 days. We're actually going to go to Daniel 8 and probably do something, I can't say probably, very likely or almost certainly do something that you're not accustomed to doing. Because when we go to Daniel 8, even in fact in the um, songs, our song leader is trying to pick out songs that go with the titles, and under 2,300 days, we must be talking about the judgment, kind of, but we're really not even going, to, we're, we're actually going to dive into Daniel 8 today and talk very little about the judgment per se. And maybe you're saying, well, how can you do that in Daniel 8? Well, we'll get there in a minute. We have been looking at what has been termed by our pioneers and Ellen White in her writings as the present truth. Early Writings, page 63, we've been building on this throughout the week. There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is what? Present truth that the flock needs now. Such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. Now, we talked about that on Tuesday. When you connect the subject of the sanctuary with the 2300 days, the only sanctuary in existence at the end of the 2300 days was the one in heaven. And so the, the idea is that present truth is pointing us to what Jesus is doing now in heaven. And we looked at that on Tuesday. We're going to look at that a little bit more tomorrow in depth. Such subjects, subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, pardon me, <clears throat> the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Now, yesterday, we spent some time looking at the commandments of God and their relation to salvation, how the law of God, obviously, we're not saved by the commandments of God, and yet the commandments of God are something that salvation has to bring us back into harmony with because it's the, it's the law we're going to abide by in heaven. And so one of the things we looked at yesterday in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4 was that the very purpose of the plan of salvation was to bring fallen humanity back into harmony with God's law by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. In Paul's words, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is why the Bible describes those living at the end of time as those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Today, we are going to actually do a contextual study on Daniel chapter 8. 
Why is that important? Now, I mentioned to you earlier this week, I believe I did, that my, when my, my parents were first-generation Seventh-day Adventists, my mother and father ended up getting divorced. I lived with my mother and stepfather, and they ended up leaving the Seventh-day Adventist church for a period of time, and they left during the height of the Desmond Ford crisis. And those who are old enough and were in the church at that time know a little bit about that, that Desmond Ford was an Australian theologian in our church who took issue with the teaching of the sanctuary. He said it wasn't biblical. He said our concept of the investigative judgment wasn't in the Bible. In fact, it came from Ellen White, and she got it from Uriah Smith. That's what he said. Furthermore, Dr. Ford along with his supporters, claimed that Adventists treated the sanctuary, or Daniel 8 specifically, Daniel 8.14, where the Bible says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. He says Adventists teach this and treat it like a contextual island. In other words, they take it totally out of context. He says the context isn't talking about the judgment. The context or the judgment of the saints, rather, some investigative judgment, the context is talking about the little horn. And so the Adventists have it all wrong. Well, there's some truth to that. Unfortunately for Dr. Ford and his supporters, the context of Daniel 8, rather than negating the veracity and the truthfulness of the Advent movement actually strengthens it. And you're going to see that, Lord willing, from our study this morning. So without further ado, we are going to do a contextual study of Daniel 8. Now what I'm going to do first is we're going to open our Bibles to Daniel 8, and then I'm going to go through the, the first few verses, and then I'm just going to have the verses on the screen, and we're just walking verse by verse. And so you can follow in your Bible, that's fine, I'll have the text on the screen. Um, Go to Daniel 8 with me, and I want to point out something else as well. Daniel chapter 8. I want to tell you Daniel 8, uh, seriously, I I do believe Dr. Ford had a point in that I have heard too few sermons, contextual sermons on Daniel 8. When we talk about the Antichrist power, we often go in Daniel to what? Daniel 7. Right? Four beasts came up out of the sea, right? And we see the, the, the fourth beast, and it was dreadful, and it was terrible, and it was worse than all the other beasts, and ten horns came out of its head, and then another horn came up, a little horn, and uprooted three, right? And, and that's a great chapter for the identity of the Antichrist power, but there's no chapter from my perspective in the Bible that outlines what the work of the Antichrist power is going to be like Daniel 8 does. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Like I say, Lord willing, you'll see that this morning. So Daniel chapter 8, sorry, I was talking and not turning. Daniel chapter 8, starting there in the first verse, Daniel begins by sharing a vision that he had. And then when you get down to verse 15, The Bible says, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision. So he describes the vision up to verse 14. And then in verse 15, he says, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man what? 
understand the vision. And so then the rest of the chapter is the explanation of the vision that we're going to look at. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through the vision in the first part, and when I put text on the screen, I will refer to some of the interpretation, but I'm not going to read through the, we're not going to read through the entire chapter for sake of time. So just so you know what we're doing, and you have it there, and if you think I'm being tricky, it's funny when I I preach evangelistic series, you know, because when you're hearing new truth, and you're like, I'm not quite sure about that. And so I'll, I'll, when I say something that somebody's not sure about, I've moved on to another point, but you'll see the, 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 this, this, I don't want to call them a skeptic. I think it's good to be, I'll call them the Bereans. They're, they're, they're still back there going through and they're reading the whole chapter I quoted from. Okay, that's fine. Um, but you miss the rest of the points. So here's the beauty of camp meeting. Somebody was saying the other day, well, you just go over so much stuff so fast. Here's the beauty of it. These things are on the Michigan Conference YouTube channel, and you can go at the end of the day, and you can go to that video, and you can watch it, and you can hit the pause button as many. In fact, here's something else you can do that maybe you didn't know about. On YouTube, you can change the speed of the playback. Slow it down, speed it up, hit the pause button. So anyway, just so you know, I'm going to reference other things. And if you feel like, well, where do you get that from? It's in the chapter, so you can do that deep dive on it later on. We're starting in Daniel 8, verse 1. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I was in, I saw in the vision... And it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a what? A ram which had two horns. Here's an artist's depiction of Daniel as he's seeing this vision. He sees this ram, the Bible says it had two horns, And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up what? Last. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and he became what? He became great. Verse 5, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Let's just pause there. What does that mean? He's moving, right? Almost flying across the ground. He's coming with great speed. That will become uh, significant in a minute. And he says the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was what? No one that could deliver the ram from his hand. 
Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, I'm going to give a synopsis of this first part, and then we're just walking verse through verse. We want to go through these first two animals. Now, when we study in prophecy, we know that animals are representative of kingdoms. But in, in Daniel 8, I mean, there's no guesswork here, because if you go to the angel's interpretation, if you go to verse 20, the Bible says, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Can somebody tell me his name? Alexander the Great, right? And so that's all spelled out for us. Verse 22, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Now, a few notes here on just, just some verification on this. First of all, when it tells us about the ram that no one could withstand the ram, and you're talking about a nation, what does that tell us about that nation? It was a world-dominating power. Okay, that, that, that's self-evident. If, if nobody else can withstand it, then it dominates the world. So when we're trying to figure, if we didn't have it spelled out right there in Daniel 8, we're like, I wonder which kingdom this would be. We could already narrow it down to world-dominating kingdoms. That, it would have to be something like that. Until the goat came. And suddenly, here comes this goat power, and the goat tramples, overcomes the ram, and then the Bible says no one could withstand the goat. So just like the ram, here comes another successive world empire. Now, I'm just telling you that to say, even if you were starting from scratch, it would help to narrow it down because you know you're dealing with world-dominating powers. But we've got better than that if you've done any study in the book of Daniel. Now, I'm going to have to make some assumption today just because of our sake of time, but if you've studied Daniel 2 and you've studied Daniel 7, you know that the Bible has already shared with us what we sometimes refer to as the kingdoms of prophecy. In Daniel chapter 2, you had the image of gold and silver and bronze and iron, which represented the four world empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome was divided, they tried to reunite, and then there was a stone kingdom that represented the coming of Christ. That's Daniel 2. You go to the next column, that's Daniel 7. And if you study Daniel 7, you remember there was a lion and a bear and a leopard and a dreadful beast, and that dreadful beast then had ten horns, and up came a little horn uprooting three of those horns. Once again, we had Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, and the division of Rome made way for papal Rome. And then that took us all the way in Daniel 7 to the ushering in of the kingdom. Now we come to Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. Babylon is not listed other than in the first verse because it says we're in the third year of king who? Belshazzar, who is the last king of Babylon. So there's no need to go into Babylon. Babylon is passing off the scene the prophecy tells us clearly that Persia is represented by the ram and Greece is represented by the goat. 
So again, you've got the, the indication with the language of the nobody could withstand him, their world empires. But if you just parallel with Daniel and read the interpretation in chapter 8, you know that we're looking at successively the kingdoms of Persia, followed by the kingdom of Greece. And then what did it say would happen to that large horn, Alexander the Great? He'd be broken. And what would happen? Four would stand up in his place. And we know from history that the Grecian Empire, Alexander died, and the empire went to four of his generals. Those four generals are listed on the screen. Incidentally, the Bible says they were scattered toward the four winds of heaven. That's just a way of saying the four directions of the compass. And we see that in history. Lysimachus was one of the generals that took the north. He took Thrace, Bithynia, and Palestine. Ptolemy, and you may have heard of the Ptolemies of Egypt, he went south, took Egypt, Libya, Arabia, and parts of Asia Minor. Seleucus went to the east, taking Syria, and then Cassander went to the west in Macedonia and Greece. And so, again, this is just... A, now, something else I need to bring up here. It, it, I, I, it's unfortunate, and I don't know how to fix it. For those of us reading this today, this is history. But friends, we are reading something that was written a thousand years before it happened. And we lose that. We're like, okay, you know, and you're just going to tell me history. And only the book was in existence before any of it happened. These things were written before it happened. And so what we're reading as history was foretold as prophecy. And lo and behold, it happens. It happens. Now, it gets better. We haven't even gotten into a lot of the detail yet. But what we start with here in the vision is just this. We're looking again at the kingdoms. Persia, then Greece the dividing of the Grecian Empire into its four parts. And then we come to Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, and I'm going to have the rest of them walking through on the screen. Now, the Bible says, the four, the four uh, horns that came up out of Greece, it says, out of, uh, came, and they grew up to the four winds of heaven. And then it says, out of one of them came a little horn. Now, if you look at verse 8, you, you, you're, you're pressed to ask yourself this question. What is the them? Out of one of them, is it the four horns or the four winds? Because the previous verse mentions both. Well, I won't take the time to do a deep dive on this, but if you were to read the original Hebrew, you see that the, the, the language itself demands that they come out of the winds. I say that for a long time, even today. How many of you have heard people apply end-time prophecy to a power known as Antiochus Epiphanes. How many have heard that? Well, one of the ways they do that is Antiochus came in that line of Seleucid kings. Seleucus was one of the generals. And it, it says here he came out of one of the horns. No, it didn't say he came out of one of the horns. You read the Hebrew, he couldn't have come out of the horns. He came out of one of the winds of heaven, one of the directions of the compass. Now, I've had people argue and they say, well, how can a horn come out of the direction of a compass without an animal? You ask the Lord, you go to Zechariah chapter 1, 18 and 19, you find the very same thing. And very clearly, the horns come out of the winds. But the Bible says, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew what? Exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Exceedingly great. And now, now think this through with me. Again, we're talking about earthly empires. 
how does an earthly empire grow? It conquers. So, so when it says it grew toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, and we're doing our detective work and trying to find out who this is, we need to find a world empire that conquered and enlarged its territory toward the south, toward the east, and the glorious land is a, is a phrase for Palestine or Judea. The Bible says that the ram was great and the goat was very great, but this little horn is exceedingly great. Now, it shouldn't take a lot with the parallel we looked at. You may be asking, why are you even going into this detail here? Do you realize that most of the Christian world does not understand that this empire, this little horn, is Rome? Like, you're like, come on. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, what other kingdom is going to be called exceedingly great compared to Medo-Persia and the Grecian Empire? The problem is some people realize that if they agree to a certain conclusion, they need to take all the rest of the stuff that comes in the package. And if you accept that this fourth empire is Rome, there are some other consequences to that. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, this is an interesting statement from Dr. Uh, Bill Shea in the Bible Amplifier series, Daniel 7. In fact, this, I believe, and I meant to check it, uh, there used to be a two books in the Bible Amplifier series by Dr. Shea. Um, one was on Daniel 1 to 6, and the other was 7 to 12. And then Dr. Shea republished a book called Daniel, I forget the exact title of it, where he combined them. And so I'm pretty sure it's in that book, because th th this one is out of print, but the other one is in print. But this is what he said, commenting on this verse. To the south to the east, and to the glorious land. These directions fit Rome perfectly as it picked off the four main pieces of the Greek Empire, Macedonia and Pergamum to the east in 168 and 133 BC, the beautiful land of Judea in 60 BC, and Egypt to the south in 33 BC. Came from the other direction and conquered just as the prophecy foretold. So, you have a world-dominating empire that grew and enlarged and became as much greater than Greece, than Greece was, than Medo-Persia, exceedingly great, in the very direction prophecy says. You're going to be hard-pressed to find another power besides Rome that fits this also. But what you can't do is say Rome doesn't fit it, because it fits perfectly. And so... In the parallel chart, you see that Rome is depicted in Daniel 2 by the iron, in Daniel 7 by the dreadful beast, in Daniel 8 by the little horn power. Now notice Daniel 8 and verse 10 as we continue reading on. The Bible says it grew up to the what? Host of heaven. We'll pause there for a minute. Now the King James doesn't have the word up in it, but it does say to the host of heaven. So speaking of the little horn power, which first grew toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, now it's growing how? Up. I want you to think this through. When it's growing toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land, how's it growing? 
Somebody said horizontally. What, what would you, what, how would that, what would a kingdom look like? What's that, what is, what are we talking about there? We're talking about civil conquest. We're talking about imperial Rome. But when it says it grew up to the host of heaven, that's not civil conquest anymore, is it? Now what's happening? This is no longer civil Rome. This is religious Rome. Again, a thousand years before any of it ever happened. The Bible foretells that there would come this worldly power that would conquer just like powers always have, but somewhere in the midst of its reign, it would think to start to grow up to the host of heaven. And the Bible says it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. The Bible here foretells the transition from imperial Rome to papal Rome. That's what we're seeing in prophecy. So, in the parallel chart, whereas you have the dreadful beast in Daniel 7, and then the ten horns and the little horn were depicting divided Rome and the papacy, in Daniel 8, the little horn covers all of it. The whole transition is seen in this little horn power and its, its uh, uh, growth. Now notice, and I'm going to share my own thought on this. Uh, you know, there are different thoughts, and maybe you have a different one. It doesn't detract. But when it says it grew up to the host of heaven, and then it says it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them, in the Bible, the word host refers to armies. Now, when we think stars, I could ask what a star represent, and maybe our mind would go to Revelation 12 when you say, well, the devil's tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven. I would refer you to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, where the Bible says at the end of time, those who turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars in the firmament. So in Daniel, Daniel talks about the stars in terms of the righteous. Now think about this for a minute. If you're talking about Rome and its transition, and you have it trampling the host armies, and stars, the righteous. And in the angel's interpretation, look at the words he uses. The mighty and also the holy people. I think it's saying the same thing. If you've got this power and the host or armies, to me that's the same as the mighty. And the stars, the righteous, the holy. What two classes of people are those? What two classes of power is that? Civil and religious. Now again, you may differ from that, but I just think the Bible's putting that exclamation mark on the fact that this power uniquely started to grow this way, but then the time came where it began to grow this way, and it was no longer just a civil power, but a civil religious power. And we see that religious... Daniel goes on now in these next few verses to zero in on that religious attempt of religious overthrow by, incidentally, I should bring this up here. When we use the word antichrist, the only place in the Bible that we find the word antichrist is in the letters of John. First John and second John, four times. Altogether, I think there's three in first John and one in second John. And when we hear Antichrist, and sometimes we talk about Antichrist, we think in the English language, anti is against, and it's opposed to. 
And it does have that connotation in the Greek, but it also means in the place of. And I think that's especially important because the way the Bible uses it, and when, when we're looking at the little horn here, when we're looking at the little horn in Daniel 7, when we're looking at the little horn in 2 Thessalonians 2, it never uses the term Antichrist. But Christians of other denominations all believe it's talking about the Antichrist. But the unique thing about the Antichrist is, you know, some Christians think the Antichrist is going to be some dastardly outsider who's going to come in to Christianity but not really be of the faith. But from Scripture, the Antichrist arises within Christianity, drawing away disciples after himself, and seeks the place of Christ. Now what we see, what we're going to see here in this depiction in Daniel 8, is that this power is going to try to put itself in the place of Christ. Okay? He, he stands up, goes up to the host of heaven, and now in verse 11 says, he even exalted himself as high as the what? The prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. There's a lot in here. We're going to break it down. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. In the angel's interpretation, he doesn't call this character the prince of the host. He calls him the prince of princes. I don't think that's going to be a stretch for you to find out who the Prince of Princes is, right? I mean, that's a common term in Christianity. Does anybody here, has anybody here never heard Prince of Princes in reference to Jesus? That's because that's who it's talking about. And so when Daniel goes in verse, the Prince of Princes and the Prince of the Host are the same being. The angel in the interpretation gives that interpretation of this Prince of the Host. So it says that this power is going to stand and exalt himself as high as the Prince of the Host. As high as Christ himself. In Joshua chapter 5, I have the text on the screen. You remember that when, when uh, Joshua was praying and this man came to him clothed in armor, and Joshua said, are you for us or for our enemies? You remember that? And this is what this soldier replied, so he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You remember reading this in scripture? That phrase, commander of the army, is the exact same in the Hebrew as prince of the host. When we read prince of the host in Daniel, th th literally this says the prince of the host. No, but as the prince of the host, I've now come. And notice what happens next in Joshua. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And here's what that prince of the host did not do. He did not do the, like the angels in Revelation that said, oh, don't see that you don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant. Don't bow down and worship me. No, he received worship. And there's only one way he would receive worship because it was the son of God, the commander of the armies of the Lord who met Joshua that day. And this is the same person we're reading about when we're in Daniel and it says, he exalted himself as high as the prince of the host and continues to say, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his, that's a capital H, his being the prince of the host, the place of the prince of the host sanctuary was cast down. If the prince of the host is Christ, where's his sanctuary? 
I'll remind you again, and I won't take time to look it up, but in Hebrews 8 and verse 4, the Bible says if Jesus were on the earth, he could not be a priest. Because he was a, from Judah and not from Levi. And so the only place, the sanctuary, nobody can say, well, the sanctuary of the prince of the host was on the earth. No, it wasn't. This is pointing specifically to the heavenly sanctuary, the Bible a thousand years beforehand telling us that this power would come, stand up to heaven, stand up against Christ, and seek to take away the daily sacrifices. We're going to unpack that in a minute. And cast down the very place of Christ's sanctuary. Now you may be thinking, how in the world would religious Rome do that? Let's 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 talk about daily sacrifice for a minute. The Hebrew word translated daily sacrifices is the word tamid. The word tamid means continual. And it's used over 50 times in Scripture in connection with the sanctuary to refer to the continual work of the priesthood. That's how it was used. So the priest conti- so when you read daily sacrifices, I mean the daily sacrifice was one event in the sanctuary and it could be misleading. But the original word actually has reference to all the work that the priest did in the sanctuary. So what this prophecy is telling us is this power would exalt itself as high as Christ himself and he would seek to take away the priestly ministry of Christ and cast the place of his sanctuary down. Seventh-day Adventist Bible Dictionary, page 257, makes this point about that word tamid. In all instances, how many instances? (laughs) In all instances, tamid denotes aspects of the tabernacle or temple service that were in operation continually, regularly, or daily. Those are all ways you can translate tamid. And pointed forward symbolically to Christ's ministry, Christ who ever liveth to make intercession for us. Continually. The point being that the Bible's foretelling that the Roman Empire would go from being a civil power to a religious power that then would stand up and seek to cast down the priestly work of Christ. Now again, you say, well, how... How is that possible? Let me ask you this. Anybody here raised with a Catholic background? Where do you go for forgiveness? Now you can say I go to God, but it was through the what priest? The heavenly high priest. No, earthly priest. And if you study to this day the religion of Rome, you have earthly priests, earthly altars, earthly incense, earthly sacraments, earthly sacrifices. But you do not hear about Christ in the temple in heaven. Now, again, this, I, I don't think this is registering with you the way it should because, oh, it's history. No. Before it ever happened, the Bible says this is going to come and this power, I mean, when Daniel was, came to the end of this, he was sick. So sick he couldn't stand. How could it be there really is going to be a power that gets, goes so far as to cast down the very ministry of Christ and obscure it from the minds and the eyes of the people? You realize there are multitudes today. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters. 
You understand that the work of Jesus in the sanctuary above is for the sole purpose of guaranteeing you and me a place in heaven. And not just you and me, but the people of planet Earth. That's what he's doing. You realize there are multitudes who don't have a concept of that. That at this moment, they have an advocate in the courts in heaven. Because it's been, even among churches, I was going, I was teaching in the book of Hebrews the other day. We were talking about the work of the high priest, and we'll look at that a little bit more tomorrow as well. And I had a retired minister from another denomination, and he burst out in the class as we're going through the work of the high priest in Hebrews. He's like, this is fascinating. This is, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. And I'm thinking, I actually said it in the class, and hold on a minute. You're a minister for crying out loud. What did you do with these texts? And he said, we did nothing with them. Why? Because way back in the dark ages, these things were buried up under the rubble of tradition and superstition, just as the prophecy said. It points forward to the work of religious Rome in obscuring the heavenly priesthood of Christ with an earthly priesthood. And even though Protestants have broken away from that to a degree, they, the minister I was talking about was a Protestant, they're still not talking about the work of a heavenly high priest. Gerhard Fondel, in his book, Daniel the Seer of Babylon, commenting on this, says, by placing human intercession in the hands of priests, the use of the confessional, and by sacrificing Christ anew in every Mass. You understand that's what the Mass is? It's Jesus being sacrificed afresh. The transubstantiation, you can do some study on that. The papacy has eclipsed Christ's heavenly ministry in the minds of the worshipers. By substituting the priest's service here on earth, for Christ's role in the heavenly sanctuary, the little horn has symbolically cast down the place of his sanctuary to the earth and thereby defiled it. Well, that's what the Bible foretold would happen. But we haven't, we haven't come to the punchline yet, friends. The Bible goes on in Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he did what? He cast, what? He cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, this, this we're going to look at this in a, in a verse from the interpretation. And if you miss everything else, I want you to really grasp what this is pointing out. He cast truth down to the ground and prospered. And then in the interpretation of the angel, it says, through his cunning, he shall cause what? Deceit to prosper. So truth is cast down and deceit is in its place. What's another word for deceit? Lies, right? So the truth has been cast down, the truth of God in the context, and lies have been put in their place, incidentally, by a professedly religious power. You would expect it from a secular power. But the Bible's foretelling a a religious power that has cast truth to the ground and then begun to promote lies. And it says he shall cause deceit to prosper or lies to prosper. Question, million dollar question here. How do you make a lie prosper? 
You repeat it. You, t- you, you can repeat all kinds of lies to me, and I'm not going to fall for it. What's the only way a lie can prosper? People have to believe that it's, yeah, they don't believe the lie. They believe the lie is true. The only way deceit can prosper is if people believe it's true. So what the Bible's telling us, foretelling, way before it happened, is that a religious power would rise and cast the truths of Scripture to the ground and put error in the place of the truth, and the masses would believe the error instead of the truth. In the context, we're talking about the Church of Rome. We're talking about the Dark Ages. We're talking about when the Bible was withheld from the people. And obviously, if the Bible's withheld from the people, thy word is truth, what are you going to believe? What you're told. Ellen White told us, we looked at this the other day, Great Controversy, page 582, in seeking to cast contempt upon the divine statutes, Satan has perverted the doctrines of the Bible. And errors have thus become incorporated into the faith of thousands who profess to believe the scriptures. Now, saints, let's get real practical. Tell me some of the lies that have been put in the place of the truth through the Dark Ages. All right, I'm hearing a few. I hear immortality. How about this? Hellfire, right? The idea of eternal burning hell. The sacraments. Secret rapture. Indulgences. The law of God being done away with, right? Sunday sacredness, there's one. Immortality of the soul, how about that? Infant baptism, are these biblical teachings? How in the world do they make it into mainstream Christianity? We're reading how. We're reading how God told us exactly how it would happen long before it happened in Daniel chapter 8. That a power would rise, professedly religious, and would put error in the place of truth and lead the masses to believe it. Right now, it's just a historical fact. This is the context of Daniel 8, 13, and 14. The Bible says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be? Concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Now, I want to look at the first part of that, and you'll understand why in a minute, where he says, I heard a certain holy one speaking, and another one said to that one who was speaking. I've tried to illustrate this the best I can. Have mercy on me. So, Daniel sees a holy one, what he describes as a holy one, speaking. We don't know what the holy one said. He doesn't record it. I heard a holy one speaking. And then he said there was another holy one who said to the one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? Now, now you've got to you've got to grasp this. This is to me, this is amazing. So, in the context of all Daniel's scene, there's a holy one who says something to another. Incidentally, I want you to notice the marginal reading for that holy one. I have a holy one speaking, but the marginal reading is the wonderful numberer or the numberer of secrets. That was the one who started speaking, but we didn't know what he said. 
But whatever he said led the other Holy One to ask the question, how long will it be? Now here's the kicker, and I want you to, I actually want you to take your Bibles and look at this. This, this, is, this is what really grabbed my attention as I uh, realized this. Verse 13, I heard a Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to that certain one who is speaking, how long will the vision be, etc., etc.? Now, if somebody asks you a question, who do you answer? The one who asked the question, right? Who does this other Holy One answer? Look what Daniel says. And he said to me. Right? So there's two Holy Ones. They're talking to each other. I personally believe the wonderful number is Christ himself. I believe when we're looking at this in Daniel chapter 8, that, that it's, it already told us that a voice came to Gabriel and said, Gabriel, make this man understand. Well, who's given Gabriel orders? These are our two people, our two holy ones that Daniel's seeing. And it would be the Lord himself who said something to Gabriel that prompted Gabriel to ask the question that Daniel was too bewildered to ask, but needed the answer to. So Christ prompts Gabriel, it's my estimation because we don't know what he said, ask me the question, how long? Why do I say that? Because, so they're talking together, and Gabriel says, so how long is it going to be? And then Jesus says to Daniel, 2,300 days. This time prophecy was so vitally important that Christ himself gave the direct answer to Daniel. For 2,000, this is the answer, how long will the vision be? Let, let me back up and ask this. How long what? Wait, what's the question really asking? How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the trampling of the... What's he really asking in the context? How long is this power going to reign? How long is this power going to get away with it? How long is the sanctuary of Christ going to be trampled underfoot, cast to the ground, people not knowing the ministry of Jesus in heaven? How long is the truth of God going to be cast down? How long? That's the question I'd be asking. How long? And the answer unto 2,300 days, or for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, typically, and not incorrectly, we look at the cleansing of the sanctuary as the antitypical day of atonement. We'll touch on this tomorrow. That began at the end of the 2,300 days. Here's our 2,300-day timeline. Forgive me if you haven't done study of this before. This is not, a, that's not our topic today to walk through. But I will tell you this, these dates are rock solid. <laughs> Anybody who's done the study on Daniel chapter 9 and gone through the, the dates and the prophecy and the connection with Daniel 8 and 9, the timeline is solid. The end of the timeline is in 1844. We know that, and typically our understanding is, correctly so, that at the end of the 2300 days, that's when that Cleansing of the sanctuary, day of atonement and judgment began in heaven. But what happened on earth at the same time? This was the question that was asked. How long? And in the answer for 2,300 days, if you asked me how long something was going to go on and I said for 10 days, what are you expecting on day 10? That something's going to happen to put it to an end. Yes or no? So listen, if the truth was cast to the ground, if the ministry of Christ was obscured, 
then when we come down to the end of 1844, what should we expect? But that somehow the truth of God would begin to be restored. Yes or no? At the end of the 2300 days, the truth that had been cast down would be restored. That's the context of the prophecy. And saints, listen to me. You look high and low for somebody, anybody, in the entire, on the entire planet after 1844, anywhere close to 1844, that, be, that began to restore the truths of Christ's priestly ministry of the immortality, or rather the mortality of the soul, of the Sabbath sacredness, of the importance of the law of God. You look high and low. What we're reading in Daniel is a prophecy of the rise of the Advent movement. So when we're talking about sound doctrine and the doctrines we have at Seventh-day Adventists, God foretold this would come. And there's nothing that perplexes me more then when we have prophecy meetings and our own members say things like, well, we told them we were going to preach prophecy, and then we start preaching to them state of the dead and hell and health, and that's prophecy. It's the very fulfillment of Daniel 8. What are we missing? God has raised up a movement to enlighten the earth with the truth of God and prepare it for the coming of Christ. Now let me ask you this question. The Bible has a name for the system of error in the last days that we've just talked about. By what name does the Bible refer to the system of error? Her name is Babylon, right? Confusion. All these confused doctrinal errors. What is the only way to overthrow error? By proclaiming the truth. So is it any coincidence that when we come to, do you still see the slides? Okay, because I, I don't, so I just want to make sure. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and what? Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Brothers and sisters, the first angel's message was bringing the truth of God back to the world. Ellen White said that this first message was designed to arouse the world from their backsliding. The truth of God was being proclaimed as foretold. The judgment hour had come as foretold in Daniel 8:14. And what would you expect to happen when the truth of God is proclaimed? What happens to the error? And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen. Folks, the error falls in the face of truth. God is looking for people in these last days who will, who will proclaim his truth to the world. We are a movement of prophecy. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I can't imagine that any Seventh-day Adventist can't say that we haven't been eyewitnesses of his majesty in these last days. To see this, the, the, the brightest light shining that has ever shown regarding the truth of God. And we are privileged to be a part of it. And like the Apostle Paul, we must say, I'm a debtor both to Jews and to Greeks. Why God chose 
to show me the light? I don't know, but it's not for me only. It's so I can share it with others. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming, and we have a work to do as a people. We've been given precious truth. God prophesied it would happen, and God has commissioned us to share that truth with the world. What do you say? I want to finish with a statement in the book, Manuscript Releases, volume 14, page 92. says, we are to stand on the elevated platform of eternal truth. The edge of the sword of truth is not to be dulled. We must take a straightforward course using the truth as a mighty cleaver to separate from the world men and women who will stand as God's peculiar people. What is holding you back? I pray that you are standing with God's people at this time. But if you're in the sound of my voice and you're backpedaling and you're hedging, what are you waiting for? God is looking for people who will stand as his faithful ones in these last days. You want to be among those faithful brothers and sisters. Is that your desire? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we've meditated upon these things, you have spoken through clay, Lord. But I pray the Spirit of God will stir our hearts and minds and help us to realize that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. But we are eyewitnesses to the glory of the Lord through the miracles you've done in our lives and just bringing us to an understanding of this last day truth. Lord, we're a movement of prophecy. What a fascinating privilege. The truth that was so long buried to be restored to the world. The ministry of Christ that has been hidden from their eyes to be brought into focus so that the people of this planet who are so struggling with life can realize they have a faithful high priest who ever lives to make intercession for them. Lord, give us the tongue of angels that we may be able to proclaim this message to those in our circle of influence and widen that circle, Lord, until the earth is lightened with the glory of Christ. We ask and pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.